Welcome to The Math of Youth, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 80th episode, I'll be talking to Shannon Maynard, Emmy award-winning character designer and podcaster, about the king of monsters, Godzilla. Along the way, we discuss throwing scorpions to prove a point, how a thick Godzilla is a good Godzilla, and how big studios need to let weirdos be weirdos. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. I'm very, very good. All right, Shane. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Sure. I am Shannon Maynard. I am a character designer on the TV show Archer. Emmy award-winning character designer, please. <laughs> yes, we won an Emmy back in season seven, I think. Hold on, it's behind me. <laughs> yep, season seven. <laughs> Let me just casually reach over my shoulder and grab my Emmy. Oh, yes, yes, it is for season seven. Hmm, yeah, yes. I'm not cool enough to have an actual statue. I just have like a certificate. It's like, hey, you were part of the team that won the Emmy. Like all the cooler, way more important people get the statues. I chose to believe that you were pulling a statue off the shelf. This is an audio medium, so you can make it whatever you want. You know what? You're right. I ruined this for myself. I had an opportunity to have a statue and I ruined it. Yeah, one chance, Maynard. <laughs> it's funny. I went to see a stand-up thing for Tom Link, who played Andrew on Buffy. He came out to oh, Australia yeah. and he talked about how he was in the movie Argo. And because Argo won, I think it was a, was it a golden, an Oscar and a Golden Globe. And at the time he was like, okay, well, it was for the whole cast, right? So he wrote to the committee of the award and said, hey, can I at least get like a certificate or something so that I can, it can look good on my resume when I go for jobs? And they wrote back and they gave him a certificate. And they're like, good luck with the jobs. Oh, <laughs> that's so nice. Yeah. But in addition to being an Emmy Award winning character designer, which is fantastic, and I love Archer with all my heart. You are also on something like 50 million podcasts? Well, I'm a permanent fixture on two, and I'm a semi-permanent fixture on one. I co-host The Cool Kids Table, which is an actual play RPG channel, and then I also co-host Kingdom Smarts, where I explain Kingdom Smarts to my friend Jake, who has no idea about Kingdom Hearts, so I'm helping him figure it out. And so what's... Okay, you're gonna have to explain something to me, because I support you on Patreon, and as such, I get seemingly daily updates yeah i'm a monster about something called sequinox what's a sequinox uh sequinox is a thing that we did on cool kids table we played a magical girl rpg using the 1990s sailor moon rpg system which is awful (laughs) yeah we just because i'm a huge magical girl fan so we were like everyone was like hey let's play a magical girl rpg they immediately handed everything to me and i went insane (laughs) And this world built a bunch of stuff, and it's about magical girls based off of the four seasons. Okay, makes total sense to me. What you saw was probably the prequel comic about their, like, tuxedo mask character, who <laughs> his name's Vivaldi, you know, the four yeah. seasons. <laughs> yes, that's, that's terrible, and I hate you. <laughs> I was so proud of that reference, and only one of the four players got it. 
<laughs> that's like, I went out of my way to give him a Venetian mask. Everything he has is red. <sighs> it's fine. It's fine. No one got Pearls it. Pearls before swine. <laughs> and I also know you from your various guest spots on other podcasts. You were recently on an episode of I Will Fight You, featuring former guests Annie Creighton and Mac Weaver and Kit Walker, talking about Kingdom Hearts. And we talked about it a bit in the pre-show, but it may have been the medication I was on that week for tonsillitis, but is it me or is Kingdom Hearts a mess? It's a mess. No, that's confirmed. <laughs> it's like a, a giant blur, and then there's a big key, and then there's not, and then someone's evil, but then they're not, and it's a clone of them, and there's time travel, and Donald Duck is there. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of that are things that happen, yes. <laughs> Some of them multiple times, but there's only one Donald Duck. But he has turned into a bird on multiple, or a different kind of bird once before, and then turned into an octopus once. I'm looking forward to the new, se- <laughs> new <laughs> sequel, Octo Donald, Donald Lee's Catch. <laughs> you know, you'd think there'd be a diminishing return on Octo Dad jokes, but really there isn't. Nope, never. <laughs> All right, so listeners, definitely go and check out some of Shannon's podcasts. They're very good. I want to talk to you a little bit about Archer, because you tend not to talk much about your actual work when you go on these kind of shows. So just like talk me through your regular day. Well, I'm part of the character design team, which means I'm part of the pre-production. So like we get a script from Adam Reed and it goes to storyboards and it goes to us. And we basically go through everything in a script and break apart any new characters, anyone that shows up in new outfits, any props, and all of that is up to us to design. It's one of those things where, like, let's say Archer shows up in, like, a new jacket. We'll probably draw, like, four or five new jackets and run it by art direction and see if they even like any of those. And if they don't, we'll probably draw four or five more until eventually we get to what you will see on television. Yeah, and there's something about, and I'm going to try and articulate this as best I can, so I'm, I'm just imagine me making a lot of very expressive gestures as I say this. Archer as a show is something where, and this is something weird, the reason I wanted to ask this question, is because it seems like every little bit of that show is incredibly designed and thought about and extremely specific. Like, I feel like there is never, you know, just a thing in the background. So it's like, the example I always give is Archer rents a fan boat from a hillbilly in, in the Everglades to make an extended gator riff. But then that hobo is also apparently Billy from Where the Red Fern Grows. Like he refers to his dogs by name and then one of them dies. Oh no! And I was sitting there on that couch feeling incredibly seen. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, I have someone who works on this show. Have you ever gotten a reference or something where you've just gone, nope, got no idea? Yes, all the time. <laughs> Adam Reed does some really deep pulls sometimes, like nine times out of ten I get it, but then every once in a while there's one reference where I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I'll look it up because we need to make him happy. Yeah, I feel like it's the opposite of the Ready Player One thing. Rather than jumping up and down and yelling, look at this reference, isn't it a good reference? It's like the power of those references is that it will slip by most people and they're not shouting about it. But if you see it, then you're like me sitting on a couch at my girlfriend's place and going, <gasps> Pause it. Pause it right there. I can't believe they did that. <laughs> There's one reference we did, I think, in season six or seven. Mm-hmm. One of the seasons where Barry was like a full cyborg. Um, he gets hit by a car and we had to go back and redesign the people driving a car so it could be a reference from some movie. But I forget <laughs> what movie, but it was very specifically like, no, these need to be these two people from this one shot. And we're just like, okay. For the split second where a cyborg agent is just like totaled by a car. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those happen a lot. And he is very specific about a lot of things. Like 
every gun he's very specific about, even if they're not, like, fully authentic to a time period. Because everyone always likes to tell us that, like, well, they're using, like, cell phones in the 60s. We're like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> but yeah, we definitely will get a lot of, like, we need this exact gun. And we're like, all right, I guess we'll just, at least that will make it easier to figure it out what it is. Yeah, just imfdb.com. <laughs> <laughs> For those playing at home, that's the Internet Movie Firearms Database, which I know because I've looked up a couple of things, usually from the Tremors series, and then realized the type of people that write this sort of wiki article are the sort of people that I would never want to meet in real life. Oh yeah. <laughs> I can't believe there's a Tremors wiki, but at the same time, I'm not surprised. There's several competing Tremors wikis. <laughs> And then there is a firearms database that lovingly documents every weapon that Burt Gummer uses in that series. The internet is a beautiful place sometimes. It is. Eventually someone will come on the show to talk about the Tremors series, and I will get to posit that Tremors 2 is actually better than Tremors 1. I don't remember Tremors 2, but I remember loving Tremors 1. Yeah, Tremors 2 is the one where they, they fight what look like mousers from Teeny Mutant Ninja Turtles, but made out of meat, and they have heat vision. <laughs> I think I do remember that. Yep. You get to see Michael Gross being ridiculous even more than in later installments. It's okay. I'm one of the few people that will probably argue that I think Hellraiser 2 is better than Hellraiser 1. Okay. I mean, that's those. Are, it's the only sequel that matters out of the Hellraiser series. I was going to say, the only one I've seen, and this is going to take me in your eyes, I'm sure, I've only seen Hellraiser Bloodline. Oh, no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so bad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have a distinct memory of like the twin Cenobites that had their head twisted together and then using that to squish someone between them. And I remember like sitting back and being like, this isn't scary, this is dumb. Yeah, no, the sequels are very bad, except for the second one. Hellraiser 1 and 2 are the only ones that matter. Anything else after that, just throw in the garbage. <laughs> it's like the Highlander thing, where it's like, yeah, it's like even the later sequels are only sequels to the first one. Even the series itself just went, I don't fucking know what was happening with that second one. <laughs> Hellraiser just went off the rails, like, immediately. Which is odd, considering where it started. It kind of already wasn't on the rails, but, like, in a general area of things that made sense. <laughs> and then eventually, down the line, someone went, what if we made a Cenobite out of a CD player? <laughs> and then it all went back. And then there's one where everything's, like, happening in a game, and it's really stupid. <laughs> and that's Hellraiser Hellworld. Of course it is, because, you know, death's in a video game. Oh god, now I'm gonna try to remember. There was a horror movie where it was like an MMO type thing, and if you died in the game, you died for real. And oh god, I think Topher Grace was in it. Hang on. Movie, video game, die for real. It was a really terrible, like, mid aughts horror movie. Oh yeah, the mid aughts were real bad for horror movies. Oh yes, it was called Stay Alive, and it wasn't to. It was. Frankie Muniz was in that movie. <laughs> And Milo Ventiglia. Yeah, I know exactly what movie you're talking about. Oh, good. So it's not just me. And it was an extended <laughs> Elizabeth Bathory reference, and all the video game stuff looked like it came out of that Johnny Quest series where they went into VR. <laughs> I used to work at a movie store before I worked on Archer, so we could, like, check out movies for free. And it's a lot more fun watching bad horror movies if you don't have to pay for them. So I would just watch a ton of, like, movies, and I was like, I'm kind of curious about this. And I'd take it home and be like, oh, that was garbage. <laughs> Which, again, is why I've seen all nine Hellraisers. <laughs> <laughs> I would do the same thing, but here in Australia, one of the big internet companies did like a Netflix knockoff where they would send you DVDs in the mail. And I was working for an outsourced company that would basically sell the subscriptions, and I got one for myself on a free trial. And so I would just order like dozens and dozens of DVDs and then get them immediately ripped into my computer and send them back. 
and use initially a terrible knockoff, but then later handbrake to just convert them so I could put them on my iPad because, hey, it was 2009, people. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would get lots of things of being like, what the hell, that seems weird. I'll throw that on there at literally no cost to me. So you're right, you take a lot of punts when you're just like, <laughs> yeah, what the hell? Because I needed to fill like a two hour commute with stuff on my iPad. So I would just be like, yeah, I think yeah. I had a solid like two years of my life where I just saw every new release for better or for worse. <laughs> All right, Shannon, well, let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? I was born up in Dover, Delaware, but we moved out of there when I was like two. So I don't remember it outside of like vague cradle memories of just dead horseshoe crabs on the beach. <laughs> Please don't. Okay, I'm glad you said on the beach because you said cradle memories and then you said horseshoe crab. And I went, there was a dead horseshoe crab in your cradle? Yeah, like my memories are just like, you know that video from The Ring where it just shows a bunch of random stuff? That's mm -hmm. basically my cradle memories. And there's just dead horseshoe crabs. <laughs> it's fine. It's normal. <laughs> so you moved away from the dead horseshoe crabs. Yeah, we moved down here to Atlanta, which is where I still live. That's why, like, I don't know any Southern things. I have no Southern accent because I'm from the North, raised by Northerners down here in the South. I did not drink sweet tea until I was 14, and I thought someone made a terrible mistake, and I was very upset. <laughs> I've had a fair few people from the South of the U.S. on this show, and I don't think any of them have a proper Southern accent. At least most will tell me that they don't have a southern accent, even though I think some of them kind of do. But it's like, I think maybe I've just been like, you know, lulled in by what's portrayed in media and assume, okay, everyone sounds like that. When in fact, no, no one does. <laughs> I don't know. Georgians kind of sound like southern cartoon characters, so it's probably not too far off. How many ice A's do you hear on a regular basis? I do not hear that. We're a lot of like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> Everything's Coke, no matter what. You ask oh, for yes. a Coke, and they say what kind, and then you say Sprite. <laughs> oh, that's right, because thanks to that Futurama episode, I know the Coke, the Coke company's from Atlanta, isn't it? Yeah, we have the World of Coke down in Midtown, I believe. I've been there like twice. I'm a Pepsi drinker. Again, Ooh. I don't belong in Georgia, but here I am. <laughs> Just picturing. It's like, what, what kind of Coke would you like? Pepsi. You get out of my store. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go places and like out of instinct I'll be like, oh I'll just take a Coke and they're like, oh sorry, we only have Pepsi. I'm just like, oh thank you. Oh great, that's awesome. Thank you so much. It's one of those things where because we have a similar thing in Canada where every soft drink is pop. Oh, or you refer to it by its name, as in, oh I'll have a pop, what kind do you want? I'll have a Pepsi. But because I came to Australia fifteen years ago, after maybe six or seven years over here where everything is referred to as soft drink, it's like it escaped my mind and then I like listen to like one of the Stuart McLean radio recordings. And he's like, oh, and he picked up a case of beer and a case of pop for the kids. And I went, <gasps> like, it's, it's like I had been, like had some of my memories overwritten and I was having a flashback as they came back to me, Wolverine style. And I was like, oh, we called it pop my entire life and I forgot about it. <laughs> my dad is from Michigan. So from his side, I'll hear pop. And then my mom's from New York. So from her side, I'll hear soda. <laughs> soda. And then you combine them. You're like, yes, it is soda pop. <laughs> no, I think I still just say Coke out of instinct because I've just been in Atlanta for so long. Like, I used to not say y'all until eventually I was like, you know what? I'll just embrace it. It's fine. It's protective camouflage at this point. <laughs> I've actually adopted the y'all, even though it sounds incredibly weird coming from my mutant Canadian half Australian accent. But I've adopted it as a gender neutral term for a lot of people. 
And yeah. it's up there with starting emails with high folks because it's just like, well, yeah, it's just a thing I started doing and I've noticed other people adopting it in my workplace. And I think it's a good practice to have because I think it's very easy to fall into the hey guys trap. And it's like, yeah, that's not cool. Since I am from the, my parents are from the North. I had the you guys in there for a long time, but now I'm trying to get rid of it and replace it with y'all. But every once in a while, you'll hear like the North and South fighting in me. <laughs> where I'll just say like you guys and y'all in the same sentence. <laughs> And I was like, I just want consistency. That's all I want. Eventually, I'll have somebody from like Pittsburgh on the show so I can hear what an actual Yinzer accent sounds like <laughs> because I read it written phonetically and I just don't get it. To these guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Northern accents are crazy. It's just strange, right? I love them though. Like, they're comforting because my mom's got like a super New York accent despite the fact that she basically hasn't lived in New York for like 30 plus years. <laughs> but like, it will not go away. Like, it's still very strong. Like, everyone will like, we'll talk to her and they're like, oh, you're 100% from New York. Like, <laughs> we don't have to hesitate or ask. We know. I said it about Boston, and I'll include New York in this too. Seemingly anyone who works at a, a food truck or a store or something in Boston or New York is like an NPC from a video game. They have their own in rich inner life, and you're just seeing a snippet of it. <laughs> I could believe that. Especially if you go to one of the markets in Boston and you walk around and it's like you're hitting you're hitting X as you go by someone to hear their little snippet of dialogue going like, I lost my key today. Could you find <laughs> my key? I'll give you a donut if you do. If you did that by the Mainers, it'd just be a lot of yelling. <laughs> All right. So growing up in Atlanta, what sort of kid were you? Oh, I was the weird art kid. <laughs> it's a very specific subset of weird kid. Yeah, I was definitely like the local neighborhood weirdo. Like, I think I've mentioned the story a few times because I have so many friends that are into pro wrestling and I used to be into pro wrestling as a kid. So like people will start explaining it to me. I'm like, oh, I know. I just wasn't allowed to watch it after I powerbombed my neighbor. <laughs> Did your neighbor lose any teeth or anything? No, he just told me I couldn't do it because I'm a girl, so I powerbombed him and I proved him wrong. <laughs> and then he ran away crying and I got in trouble. No, Mom, you see, I was making a point for gender politics. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so that's the kind of kid I was. And I think I also have stories where, like, I either hit people with, like, two-by-fours or threw scorpions at them. Okay, the two-by-fours I get as a wrestling reference because Hacksaw Jim Duggan is a thing. Why were you throwing scorpions at people? I didn't like the girl. Okay, maybe I should have rephrased this question. As opposed to motive, which makes sense, you didn't like her, I'm talking more about ability. Like, where did you find said scorpions? Where were you keeping said scorpions? Did you have them on you for just such an occasion and then felt the moment was right? I do like the idea that I just have like a box of scorpions that I throw at people. But no, we were at summer camp and there was a girl that just always got on my nerves. A scorpion showed up. I think it isn't it like the bigger a scorpion it is. Yeah, the less like, poisonous. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it was a massive scorpion, and it was on the wall, and she started screaming and just wouldn't calm down. And like it wasn't bothering anyone; it was just there, and it was like far enough away that like you could walk around it and just like go into the bathroom and be fine. But she wouldn't stop screaming and she wouldn't go inside, so I picked it off the wall by like the tip of its tail, so it couldn't sting me. Because I was just getting so mad at her, I was like, "Look, it's fine." Oh god, I can't breathe. Keep going. This is good. Like, she started to run away, so I just threw it at her. It didn't land on her, and like she was already running away, so I knew there was no danger, but it just felt good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having trouble breathing. <laughs> because I know you probably didn't do it in this fashion, but in my head, you have grabbed the scorpion by the tip of its tail, and you were spinning it around your head like a bola. 
And no. you're like, this I... might sting. <laughs> you just plug it. I wish it was that cool. Like a Power Rangers villain. <laughs> oh, man. I, if I had only known, I definitely would have. Oh, my God. As former guest of the show, Kit Mulcairn, has said to other former guests of the show, Megan Bob, scorpions are specifically built to show that they do not want you to touch them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't get that memo. Like, everything about them just screams, hey, don't pick me up. Look how spiky and sharp I am. <laughs> the scorpion didn't seem too bothered by me, though. I just remember picking it up and it just hung there and it was just like, all right, well, this is happening. <laughs> It goes home to its little burrow and hangs its hat on the wall and goes, some fucking kid threw me again. (laughs) (laughs) I had a good spot. I was minding my own business. I thought everyone would leave me alone. Nope. (laughs) This town gets worse every day. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that was the level of kid I was. I was just, I was very weird and I wasn't afraid to like, I don't know, I guess throw scorpions at girls. Uh, Powerbomb people or punch them or throw scorpions at them. I think I was also a huge Power Ranger fan, and then I had to stop watching Power Rangers because I made another boy cry. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to ask a preemptive question. How many of your media stories end with, and then I use what I learned from the show to make someone cry, and I wasn't allowed to watch that show anymore? After all of that, it went downhill. <laughs> I kind of started learning my lesson where I'm like, all right, I have to stop making people cry or else I can't watch TV. (laughs) But in my defense, it was another case of someone telling me I had to be the pink ranger because I'm a girl Uh and I wanted to be the green ranger. Fair. So I just like, I only pushed him. He was just a baby. (laughs) I think I was like eight and he was like six. I remember it was my cousins, they were twins, and me and my brother still do this to each other because the twins were like super neurotic and they would like make the room perfect and wouldn't want anyone to mess with it. So me and my brother would go in there and start messing with everything because we just, we kind of didn't like them. Fair, fair. They'd just do this whole thing where they're like, don't touch my toys, don't touch my toys. And me and my brother still do that to each other this day. So when he said I couldn't be the Green Ranger, I pushed him over and took the Green Ranger from him and then they started knocking everything off the shelf. <laughs> it's a real nice shelf you got here. Shame if something happened to it. <laughs> and now I'm an adult with a basement full of toys that is now very much, don't touch my toys. <laughs> and how many of those toys are the Green Ranger? I think only two or three of them. Because <laughs> you've already proved that point. He's not my favorite anymore, but he was when I was a kid. I just, I didn't want to be Kimberly. I wanted to be Tommy. Tommy got that cool, like, triangular shield thing over his shoulders that made him different. Yeah, and he had the dragon sword, and I was super into dragons. But I was apparently also super into making little boys cry, and then I didn't get to watch Power Rangers anymore. (laughs) And the thing is, oh god, I I don't have the reference point handy, but I always loved that the dragon sword had a particular sound effect that was used on seemingly every dragon or sea serpent, like right down to the Unagi from Avatar. (laughs) That dragon sword yell, which I I can't, I'm going to try and use words to describe, it's sort of a a back of the throat kind of that was used in so many kaiju movies and so many tv shows that for me i remember thinking like i really liked the dragon sword not just because it was you know equivalent of mecha godzilla with little rocket fingers and everything <laughs> but that the dragon sword was like immediately familiar watching power rangers even though nothing else in that show was familiar because i had never watched any sentai shows but i remember always thinking the dragon sword had that really like familiar unique sound 
And I'm like, oh, I get it. Yes, okay, he's a sea monster because he comes out of the ocean and he makes that noise. Instant recognition for me. Yeah, I was also super into Godzilla as a kid. Like, yes. I just really liked monsters. So when he showed up, I was like, oh, it's just a robot Godzilla. Awesome. I'm down for this. Yeah, um, my dad used to put on Godzilla movies for me when I was a kid on uh, Saturday mornings because he used to watch them because he had a neighborhood theater that would constantly rerun them. And he would like sneak in the back and like sit in the balcony and watch Godzilla movies. And if people talked during the movie, he would pour the last of his Coke into his popcorn, which would then turn into a gluey mess inside of the cardboard packet. And he would dump it over the edge of the balcony and run. Oh my God. (laughs) My dad was a little shit, but I'm okay with that. I know I just said that like I threw scorpions at people, but that's so mean. (laughs) Yeah. And for Christmas, my infant son got me the two Showa Godzilla box sets. Oh, nice. And so, uh, yeah, when he's old enough, I will be showing him those. Because at the moment, he only has the attention span. He's nine months old. He's only got the attention span for about 20 minutes of movie. He had really good taste to pick those ones out, though. Yeah, and specifically, it's got Ibira, Terror of the Deep, and it's got Terror of Mechagodzilla, and a couple of other ones that were very important to me when I was a kid. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think my favorites when I was a kid was uh, any of the ones with Mothra. I mm-hmm. just really liked Mothra. And anyone where King Ghidorah showed up. I love Ghidorah. And the thing is, he's such a good design, too. I think I was just talking to Kit Mulcairn about this, is that he's such a fantastic design. Like, he, he shows up and, you know, shit's just gotten real. Yeah. I even love the 2014 Godzilla movie. Call me a mark. I don't care. I like it, too. I saw that shit in IMAX, like, first week it came out. I was really excited for it. There's a picture of me next to the standee making a Godzilla face. Aww. <laughs> and my girlfriend, who I'd only been dating for about six months at the time, took me to it, and she's like, are you going to be okay? I'm like, I'm so excited. <laughs> because she grew up in Japan, she would watch them as well. Her dad would show her all those movies. And at one point, during the big climactic scene, where you see Godzilla, like, kind of shape up to the Mutos, and, like, there's a moment where it's, like, the zoom in as he, like, puts his claws up, and... Kimiko couldn't resist in a nearly empty IMAX theater. She yelled out, get him, Goji! <laughs> and I'm like, this is the girl for me. <laughs> oh, I got really excited when he did the roar and yeah. then breathed the radiation beam. I was like, I know this movie has boring humans that don't matter, but I don't care. This Godzilla is great. Didn't just breathe the radiation beam, but held open the monster's throat and breathed it down his fucking throat. He's so brutal. That's like a finishing move in a video game. I love it so much. <laughs> And he was just so chunky. I love that he was just a big fat Godzilla. Like Japan made fun of us for it. And I was like, leave him alone. He's beautiful. He's thick, goddammit. And and yeah, and that he's big and powerful and much more bear-like. Yeah. Kind of like the original. I'm a big fan of just like any monster that's just like huge. Like I don't want them to be cute and cuddly. I want them to be a monster. When he showed up, I was like, no, you're going to wreck this city and I can't wait. Yeah, you're a boulder with claws on it. I love it. Actually, there was a, don't know, I, I think I've tried to find it before, but for the IMAX posters, there was a really cool, like, hand-drawn, comic-style, giant, like, banner poster that they had outside the IMAX, where it was, like, it was the kanji of his name, and within the kanji was each scene. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and so the whole thing then made up sort of the shape of, <laughs> of Godzilla's head. Sorry, I've just been handed a baby. <laughs> so you may hear some baby noises. Yeah, the whole thing made up the shape of his head, and it was so fucking cool, and way better than the actual posters that they used for the theatrical release. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I've actually tried to find one, but there are so many DeviantArt versions that it's just like, that's not the one I want. That's not the official one. Oh, no. What were your thoughts on Shin Godzilla? Did you see it? I have not watched it yet. A friend of mine is a huge Godzilla nerd, mm-hmm. and he found out that I like Godzilla as well. So it's one of those, like, me and my husband were going to watch it, but now we're just kind of like, all right, well, now we have to watch it with Ryan. It's one of those movies where reading about it, I love the concept. I loved everything about it, except for the actual sitting down and watching it. I was so bored. 
Oh no, I hate when that happens. And the thing is, it's a very long movie. It's like two and a half hours long. And it's a very, like, I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything. It's it's a rich satire of Japanese government politics and how they react to crisis, especially in the wake of Fukushima. Like, that's very biting, pointed satire. Like, even down to the subtitles of what room they have meetings in. It's very good and very smart. However, when you're watching a two and a half hour movie and you don't know when it's going to end, it seems endless. <laughs> Well, my favorite movie is There Will Be Blood, which is basically a three-hour movie of people talking, so yep. I can kind of deal with a long, boring movie. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think if I had gone into it knowing what kind of movie it was going to be, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. But then I went and did my usual TV tropes deep dive and was like, oh no, this was a really smart and clever movie. It just wasn't fun to watch. Oh no. Yeah, that happens sometimes. When you just come off of the 2014 Godzilla movie and was expecting like a throwdown. And it's like, no, it's not that kind of film. Yeah. But I remember I listened to Kaiju Cast, and they were talking about their reviews of Shin Godzilla. They made a really excellent point, which is where they hoped that this movie opened the door for everyone to be able to say, all right, I want to make my kind of Godzilla movie. And it's going to be different from anybody else's Godzilla movie. It just becomes this kind of open door for auteur directors or writers to be just like, I want to use this setting to tell my kind of story. I would 100% be okay with that. Me too. And it's something they're kind of doing poorly, I wish it was better, with the Cloverfield series. Yeah. I still need to see 10 Cloverfield Land. I've heard it's really good, but again, like, I didn't see any monsters in the trailer, so I was just like, but I want to see a monster. Instead, you get intense John Goodman. Yeah. I've heard the drama is very good, and everyone just told me that I would love that, because again, my favorite movie is There Will Be Blood, which is just a very tense and uncomfortable movie of people talking, so everyone's like, no, it's still your kind of movie, it's just not the kind of movie that you thought it was going to be. Yeah, I am down with intense movie scenes where there's talking, like, my favorite bits of things like Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards were just incredibly tense conversations around a table. Oh, man, yeah. Like where you know, like one person knows something, but then another person might know that thing and you're not sure. And so there's just this ratcheting tension the whole time. And you're just like on the edge of your seat. That, I love that shit. Give me that shit all the time. The opening scene of Inglorious Bastards is such like, just a craft of just tension. Yeah. I love it. Or later when you've got, you know, Michael Fassbender at the table and he's like, you know, he's lying but you don't know if the others know he's lying. It's like, are you just, are the other people, are you just being a bit of a jerk? Or do you know my secret? And then the whole thing falls apart and it's great. Stuff like that is my jam as well. Just bringing it back to sort of kaiju movies for a minute. Have you seen Colossal? I have not. I would really recommend it. I think it's really interesting. And again, taking from that viewpoint of using what could be a particular story and using that as a jumping off point to tell a different kind of story. Oh yeah, that was like the weird comedy one where she turned into the monster. Yeah, and the thing is like we got it because it was a 99 cent rental on iTunes and they let you keep that stuff on your account for like a month. And so there was just like one Saturday where it was just like, what should we watch? I'm like, oh, well, I've got that rental of Colossal. Yeah, let's watch it. It's really interesting. Yeah, I remember I wanted to see it, but I just missed it. It kind of just came and went, didn't it? Because I feel like it was in production for like three years. Yeah. And it was like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then it was in theaters for like a hot minute and it was gone. It's a comedy, but it's also a lot of drama stuff to it. And there's also a little bit of like rough stuff to it in terms of like, and again, I'll content warning it for people who are hearing this who might want to go and see it. There's some rough stuff around like emotional abuse and manipulation and things, but it's also an incredibly well-told story of that. Yeah. Like you get to watch a character change throughout the duration of this movie. And it's a really good movie. I got to the end and I'm just like, that was nothing like what I was expecting, but that was really good. Yeah. I have heard that it's one of those, like the monster's an allegory for something. I was like, oh, mm. I love that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. It's very much so. I mean, hey, I remember watching... 
I think it's it's one of the Mechagodzilla ones. I forget which title it is. Where there's Titanosaurus, and Titanosaurus is being controlled by a scientist daughter and is emotionally linked to her, and being a little kid and watching Godzilla punch this big like dinosaur monster and watching her feel the pain of it and getting really like worked up and worried for her. And I'm like, they shouldn't be fighting that monster because that monster's hurting a person. You know, when you do that. And like in my little six-year-old brain, that meant, okay, well, that means you have to be nice to that monster. Because look, you're hurting this girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Some friends watched The Babadook recently. Oh, yes. Which I love. They were watching like a bunch of like monster movies and then they got to The Babadook and they're like, oh, we hated it. I was just like, well, I'm not going to be that person that sits here and pushes up my glasses all like, well, it's an allegory for grief. Because like, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But, like, I'm just a huge, like, nerd for movies. And I was just like, but do you want to talk about how it's an allegory for grief? It's very cool. I got that way with It Follows for about a week after it happened, where I'm just like, someone talk to me about this movie. I have thoughts about this movie. (laughs) That was me when I saw uh, Phantom Thread in theaters. I Oh, I've yet to see it. Oh, it's so good. Oh, yeah. It's very weird, though. (laughs) I took my husband to see it with me, and I haven't gotten him to watch There Will Be Blood with me yet, so this was his first time watching a movie by that director. And, like, we watched it, and it finished, and I was just like, I really want to talk to you about this movie. And he's like, I feel like there's a lot to talk about with this movie, so yes. And I was like, I'm so happy right now. It's the the sound of a chain being unclipped from a collar, and then Shannon Mayer let loose. He wants to be a screenwriter, so he's doing a lot of screenwriting stuff, and he's been doing master classes. Okay. So he just did, like, the Aaron Sorkin one and the Martin Scorsese one, so now he's watching a lot more movies. And, like, he's always liked movies, but he hasn't been into movies. So now he's, like, actually, like, helping me build my Criterion collection, which I'm really excited about. Oh, cool. So now we'll actually sit down. I'm like, do you want to chew on this movie with me? And he's like, actually, yeah. I'm like, do you want to talk about cinematography? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh you've struck gold. Oh, so excited. <laughs> I got that way because the thing is, you might have noticed I'm someone who likes to talk about stuff. But like every once in a while, I'll there was a, a podcast that was called Goodfellas Minute, which did like Star Wars Minute, but for Goodfellas. Oh, nice. And so like I remembered, like, and I wouldn't recommend it because there's a person on there who is now found out to be extremely problematic. So, but it did allow me to like reconnect with this movie that I hadn't seen since I was a teenager, but that I had seen like 40 times when I was a teenager because it was one of my dad's favorites. And like the amount of craft that went into that movie. And what I finally did is like, okay, I want to watch this, but I also don't want to be that guy who like talks through all of this, you know, because I'll ruin the movie. And I asked him if she'd seen it. And she's like, I think I saw it once like ages ago. I'm like, cool. All right, here's what we'll do. I will make a pasta dinner. I will open a very nice bottle of red wine. We're both going to put our phones in the other room and we're going to watch this movie. How's that? She's like, okay, cool. And I got to watch the live reactions to an old movie and just be like, like, I'm not going to be the guy who turns and goes, huh? But I was quietly watching like what moments were effective and what moments affected someone who was not as familiar with this movie as I was. And it was a really nice experience. Nice. I've been doing that with David, which is really fun, but David's one of those people that doesn't react very well. Oh, like, no. well not very well, but like he's very stone-faced the entire time he watches a movie. And like I'm very expressive and very loud. Like I'm the person in comedy movies that's like hitting you while I'm laughing. It's the huh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so like I showed him a bunch of Kurosawa movies recently, because again, he's just like, I wanna watch old movies. And I was like, Do you wanna watch a bunch of Kurosawa movies? I would just like watch him watching the movie and he would just like zero reaction but then we'd get to the end of the movie and he would just have so much to say about it but like he just didn't show any of it he does the same thing whenever we watch comedies like 
I'm a big fan of Edgar Wright, so we would watch Edgar Wright movies, and like he just nothing. Then at the end, he'd be like, "That was a really funny movie." And Edgar Wright, I think, especially holds up to that kind of close watching. Oh yeah, because there's there's so much in those movies. Oh, Hot Fuzz is brilliant. I'm a, a barracker for The World's End as well. Oh, I love The World's End. I, I especially like comparing it with okay, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. When you see those action sequences or like fights, and then you. In between Hot Fuzz and World's End, he did Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yeah. And watching his fight choreography style change in between those movies. So good. The scene in the bathroom where they're fighting all the blanks. Thinking of that in terms of, okay, this is a guy who just shot Michael Sarah doing, like, Wuxia moves. And then you see Nick Frost, like, spin a blank around his shoulders in this, like, Lucha Libre wrestling move and finish with a backbreaker. And I'm like, ah, that's where you see it. And all the, the camera moves that are happening throughout. It's, yeah, it's very reminiscent of Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, I love The World's End. There's a lot of really cool, like, layered callbacks that he does a lot anyways, but then they're, like, even more kind of layered in The World's End that I kind of love. Yeah, and considering it's a movie about nostalgia and remembering and how what you remember may not be the same, the idea of having those callbacks actually serve that theme as opposed to just being, oh, this is a cool trick I can do. Like when, you know, Sean goes out in the morning to get his coke from the store and comes back and it's all one shot and then it's replicated later when everyone is zombies and you spot the differences. Like that's a really clever trick. Having that happen in the world's end is actually like serving the greater narrative, which I think is such a nice touch. Yeah, I love that a lot. Cause, like it started out as a joke and now it's a narrative tool. And it's like, oh man, imagine the Ant-Man we would have gotten if oh, Marvel fuck. had just let him do it. It's like, let him do the thing. Especially now that we have Thor Ragnarok from Titan oh, and it's just yes. like, you guys were cool with this weirdo, but you weren't cool with that weirdo? Like, just let weirdos be weirdos and look at the good movies they make. Even someone like John Favreau, who went and made Chef because he was sick of being micromanaged, and the whole first half hour of that movie is an allegory for Marvel saying, no, you have to do it like this. And he's like, but, but I don't want to do it like that. You asked me to do something, and I'm doing it, and you're not letting me do the thing you want me to do. Yeah, I think that's why Black Panther and, like, Thor Ragnarok ended up being some of my favorite of the Marvel movies, or, like, my absolute favorites, because you can just see where Marvel has pulled back, and they're like, no, we trust you now. I'm like, cool, it only took 20-plus movies. <laughs> I completely agree, although I, what's funny is that both with, I, I think with, with the, both of those, because I love, love, love both those movies, but they didn't have that emotional punch that something like Spider-Man Homecoming did. That's true. Where it's like, it, at no point was I like really punched in the stomach by an emotional choice. The way I was when Spider-Man lifted the heavy thing. Oh god, that scene. Lifted the heavy thing. Oh. Like, I know I just said that my husband doesn't react to movies, but he reacted in Spider-Man and it was the sweetest thing. Oh. Because Spider-Man's his favorite superhero, so when like any time something would happen in that movie, I would just see him like patting his legs. Oh. So good. And the thing is, I, I tweeted this yesterday and a bunch of people came back to me, so I know it's a common enough feeling that I can feel confident saying this. I watched The Last Jedi like four months ago, five months ago, and in theater once. And I have not seen it again since. I'm going to get it eventually. But I still, like yesterday, I was walking my son in a pram and my mind wandered back and I thought about that scene where Paige Tycho realizes that her whole crew is dead on her bomber and she has to finish the mission and she can't be scared, can't be despairing because... If she doesn't finish it, it's all for nothing. And like everything is conspiring to stop her from doing the thing. And she makes the decision that, no, I have to do this thing and does the thing. And I remember just like like thinking back, like pushing my kid on a sunny like heart morning on the way to get coffee and then go to the post office and just being like overwhelmed with emotion from that moment. And like that's that 
Spider-Man Homecoming feeling where it's like you see him give up in that scene and then realize, well, no, I can't give up because I still have to do the thing. It's such a good scene. And there's nobody going to do the thing but me. And then he does the thing. And I'm just like, little did I know that in my, you know, mid-30s, I would become someone that would be like emotionally overwhelmed by someone doing a thing because the thing had to be done. <laughs> I could see myself growing up to be that person because I was definitely still that person as a kid. But I very famously have watched like movies I was way too young for as a kid. So like I kind of, oh yes, like I didn't grow into it. I just started with it. I mentioned loving Hellraiser. Like I watched Hellraiser 1 when I was like 10. Okay. I also saw this one I knew watching it that I was too young and I still need to go rewatch it. But I saw Eraserhead when I was 12. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to need you to stop and unpack your 12-year-old reactions to Eraserhead. <laughs> Just a lot of blank. My mom was one of those people that, like, if she wanted to see something, nothing was going to stop her from seeing it. So, like, if I sat down with her to watch it, she would just be like, this isn't real, so don't be scared. <laughs> cool. I would watch horror movies. She's like, that guy, that guy's not real. Don't worry about it. If I ended a movie with any questions, she'd just answer them for me instead of, like, kicking me out. And I remember she was watching Eraserhead, and I sat down next to her, and the whole movie, I just stared at the screen, just going, I'm too young for this. <laughs> I know nothing, like, there's no nudity, there's no cursing, but I'm too young for this. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. And like, I would look at my mom and she would have the face of like, I don't know what's happening either. I'm like, all right, cool. It's not just me. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go do something else. I'm going to get some coloring books or <laughs> like maybe sit down with a book to read or something. Just let me know when this movie is over. And then I think I watched it again when I was in college. It was just like, oh yeah, I was definitely too young for this movie. I still don't know what's happening. I'm too young for this movie in college. <laughs> <laughs> but now it was like a 30 year old. Every once in a while I'll stop and think about it. I'm like, oh, I think I get that movie now. I think I get it. Maybe I need to watch it again. It's on my list of things I want to show David and to go get like the nice Criterion edition. And I'm like, I just want to show you this so we can figure it out. Let's crack this nut together. <laughs> my mom was like a big David Lynch fan and like she loved Blue Velvet. That's Lynch, right? Yeah. Okay, good. I was like 99% sure, but then the second I said it out loud, I was like, if I'm wrong about that, I'm going to hear about it. The tweets will arrive. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, again, she was just like, oh, I want to watch more David Lynch movies, but I have, like, a kid. So I'm just going to watch David Lynch movies. If she has any questions, I'll just answer them. But then we watched <laughs> Eraserhead together. She's like, I have no answers. Just go do something else. <laughs> and I think I saw a bunch of Tarantino movies when I was too young. Oh, boy. But then I just kind of grew up just being like, eh, they're just movies. Now I just have, like, an appreciation for it because I, like, got to see them when I was younger and then rewatch them when I was older and just be like, oh, why'd you show this to me? I got that with a lot of 80s action movies that were often quite bloody. And so when I saw Pulp Fiction, I was like 14. My friend Derek and I went to the Dolphin Theater because we heard this movie was cool. And we were like 14 and the guy wouldn't sell us a ticket. He's like, it's an R-rated movie. You're kids. And so we got my dad's co-worker, Chris, to come across the road and buy the tickets from the guy. And he said something to the effect of, don't worry, they see worse at home. And it was before I saw Pulp Fiction. And I realized all the drug references and blood and murder and that what the clerk probably would have thought when they go in my dad's friend Chris said they see words at home. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, we saw it and it was just like, yeah, okay, that's a movie. I think the most infamous one that my parents did was From Dust Till Dawn came out in theaters. <gasps> yes. Yeah. And I was... I was six years old. I know my brother's four years older than me, so he was probably like nine at the time. Oh. And like my parents went, they're like, oh, well, you guys watched Reservoir Dogs. Like, 
you guys like zombie movies, like, it'll be fine, it's just a vampire movie. And they went and got the tickets, and everyone was just like, oh, well, this is, like, a really violent movie, are you sure you want to take your kids? And my mom's as stubborn as me, where she's like, when someone tells her no, then, like, she just wants to do it even more, where she's like, yeah, my kids are gonna be fine, leave me alone, stop telling me what to do. <laughs> and we got into the theater, and, like, we were waiting for the movie to start, and a guy came up with, like, you know, the people that walk through with the little light, and it was just like, no, seriously, like, are you sure you want your kids to be here? This is a very graphic movie, it's very just inappropriate, and mom's like, no, we're staying. And then the movie <laughs> started. So was it before or after they got to the vampire titty bar when your mom regretted her decision? <laughs> It was before. It was everything that came out of Quentin Tarantino's character's mouth. Oh, yes. Even now as an adult, I skip all of those scenes because he is uncomfortable. It's gross. Gross in a way that I can only refer to as moistly gross. Like, it's just like, makes your skin crawl. I, I just, I hate him so much, but <laughs> we were watching the movie and like my mom was just like, looked at my dad. She told me, she's like, yeah, I just, I looked at your father. It was just like, oh no, they were right. We have to go. Like, I just thought it was going to be violent, but this dude's just saying a bunch of stuff I don't want my kids to absorb. And then like, they started to get up and me and my brother were just like, no, no, the vampires aren't here yet. We're not leaving. And I was like, all right, all right, fine. Oh, see, so, see, you guys knew that the vampires were coming. When I was 14 and I saw that movie, I did not know the vampires were coming. <laughs> because my dad's friend Mike had said, oh, you know, your dad's out of town, I'll take you to the movies. And I went, okay, cool. And he's like, oh, we'll go see this Cops and Robbers Road movie that I've heard about called From Dusk Till Dawn. And so we do. And I was watching it, and yeah, I was, I was uncomfortable during the Quentin Tarantino moments. And then they turned up at the Vampire Titty Bar, and everything went to hell. And my eyes were as big as saucers, because I had no idea that turn was coming. And I looked over at him, and he's got his hands over his face, and he's muttering to himself, your father is going to kill me. And I got home and Motormouth recounted the first half of the movie up to the point where he says, here is the peace and death I can't give you in life and kills his vampire rapist brother. And then my mom went, okay, we can talk about something else now. <laughs> yeah, I just remember like, yeah, me and my brother were there for vampires because that's what my mom told us. She's like, yeah, it's a movie about vampires. We'll be fine. We're like, cool. We love vampires. But then like, you know, the preamble to the vampires happened and I was like, oh no, this is a mistake. But then we lost our minds and we had to stay. The I was like, all right, fine. We'll stay in the whole movie she just sat there with her head in her hand she's like oh my god oh i found it i finally found the level that's gonna scar my children <laughs> but then like we left the movie theater just stoked and super excited for that movie we're like oh the vampires are so cool the guy had a gun and then they're like they used the squirt guns it was like Phew. and then i was in the back seat and they're like mom why were they talking about eating cats though <laughs> it's just like oh god i hate this i hate this now oh <laughs> <sighs> And on that incredible note, we should probably look at wrapping this up. So Shannon, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? You can find me on Twitter at Shannon Maynard. I have an art blog at shannonmaynardart.tumblr.com. You can find me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Shannon Maynard. I have a store where I sell stickers, art books, so on and so forth. It's shanmaynardart.storeenvy.com. My two podcasts I mentioned are at Kingdom Smarties and at CKTCast on Twitter. Yeah, and definitely go and buy some of Shannon's art and commission stuff. And although Shannon is very busy being on a million podcasts, <laughs> I'm sure she will make time for you. I will always find time to keep drawing. <laughs> All right, Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thank you for having me.
you very much to Shannon Maynard for her time. When I asked Shannon for cocktail suggestions, she said she was easily sold by cocktails that are sour or tart, lemon or grapefruit or pineapple, and sometimes that's a nice whiskey, scotch, or bourbon drink. She usually stays away from tequila or gin, she hates the taste of gin, and hates what tequila turns her into, lol. And that's fair. Instead, I stuck with the sour theme, and I just so happened to have a bunch of whiskey laying about the house, so that worked out nicely. And so I present the Hellraiser. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of pink grapefruit juice, half an ounce of fresh lime juice, and a quarter ounce of simple syrup or agave syrup if you can get it. Add two dashes of bitters and shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain into a cocktail glass and top with a sage leaf that you've held in your hand and clap twice to release the aroma. This cocktail is interesting and important, like a TV show you make someone cry over. Enjoy! is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you could pledge as much as you want. You could drop like a hundred bucks. That would impress me. Patrons get bonus cocktails, physical mail, and I would really just appreciate it a whole bunch. If you would like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used, going all the way back to episode one. That's like 17 hours worth of music, including this song. It's Cut to the Feeling by Carly Rae Jepsen. You know, I checked the other day, Carly Rae Jepsen is the single most used artist on The Math of You. And there's a reason, because she's great. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Jay Edidin about growing up in the hardcore logician fandom. Yes, really. Join me, won't you? So... <laughs> 
I am currently surrounded by a half-packed house of boxes because last weekend we, within like a day and a half, went from, hey, my friend is moving out of this house she owns. It's on the same street as you. We should check it out. To, hey, you're moving oh, uh, on the 21st. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a really fun surprise. And like, I'm not scared of moving. I love moving because, well, I don't love it, but I'm, I love being able to use my moving skills because I've moved a lot in my life, except for I've never moved with a baby. Oh, yeah, that's going to make it way harder. Yeah, like yesterday, uh, Kimiko had like kind of that hands night, which is like a bachelorette kind of lunch deal thing for a friend of hers who's getting married in May. And so they like had like a water taxi cruise around the harbor and then like a fancy lunch and all these things planned. And so she was out for like the whole day and I was in with the baby and I'm like, that's cool. I'm cool hanging and handling the baby on my own, except for I then thought, well, maybe I'll get stuff done at the same time. No, no, you cannot do that. Yeah, I can only imagine. Hiro is nine months old and he is like a wanderer and a climber and a puller downer things so you can't take your eyes off him for a minute oh no is he crawling already oh yeah he's a, a very fast crawler and he's not like standing up on stuff with just like one handhold so yesterday I found him he was standing up against the bookshelf and so I got there to stop before he pulled down on the books and then he holds out I mean he's got a bit of paper I'm like oh did he grab that off the floor or something and then it's a single blue five uno card I'm like, how did you, what, the, the Uno cards aren't even in this room. What did you do? I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. <laughs> just finds it, opens it, carefully pulls out one. What's the one thing I could do, like a magic trick, to show that I've been somewhere else? <laughs> just ta-da, now you have a mystery to solve. Yeah, and it turns out that he had actually, like, yeah, pulled it out up from under somewhere else and opened it somehow and pulled out one card and then closed it somehow and then put it back. <laughs> well, at least he's considerate. Yeah, because he chases the cats as well, and he's fast enough that they spring away because they'll see him and he'll be coming at speed like a little tugboat. Eventually, they'll get, he'll get close enough that he will swing and then there will be nothing there for him to swing at. It's like they phase it away. Oh, God. And so he'll do that. Like, I'll see him go into the dining room, which is around a corner from the living room. And I'll say, oh, he's after the cat. And I go and look in, and suddenly he's not there. And I'm like, uh-oh. And I see the bathroom door is open, and I look in the bathroom. And he's sitting on the inside of the shower, on the floor of the shower, playing with, like, a little boar scrubber thing, and just, like, throwing it and picking it up. And I'm just like, what, what are you even doing? <laughs> you cartoonishly adventurous baby. I have a hard enough time making my cat not eat stuff off the floor. Yeah, and it's like all of our fridges have no magnets below a certain level because Olive, my black 15-pound cat, will like walk up to the bottom of the fridge, stretch up, get his claws on a magnet, and just drag it down and then slowly like chip it off the fridge until it's on the floor and then lose interest in it and then do it again. <laughs> so yeah, nothing is below a certain level on all of our fridges. Oh man, I'm very lucky to have a lazy cat. <laughs> a lazy snoring cat? A lazy snoring 19 and a half pound cat. Oh wow, that's a big one. Yeah, oh yeah, she's huge, but we're having to put her on a diet because she's pre-diabetic, so... Okay. 19.5 <laughs> is her new weight, and we're very excited because that's very low. <laughs> What's her name? Zelda. Aww, 
so she sits around waiting for people to save her, so she's early game Zelda. I named her when Twilight Princess came out, and she was a gift for my grandpa, and I was told I was getting this beautiful, long-haired white cat, so I was like, that sounds like a princess, I'll name it Zelda. And then he shows up with, like, this chubby little torty black cat, <laughs> and I was like, well, I already decided on Zelda, but I just finished Twilight Princess, and this is totally a Minda, but, like, it's already <laughs> in my head that it's Zelda, so she's Zelda now. You gotta deal with it. I am all a fan of referential names for cats that either like end up being the opposite or end up being too apropos. <laughs> yeah, Olive's an easy one because Olive is Olive because he was little and round and black when I got him. And I then have to deal with many times people going, why would you give your cat a girl's name? And I'm like, no, he's named for the thing, not for the person. <laughs> Bolin was originally going to be Mako from Legend of Korra. And then we saw how dumb he was and we named him Bolin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he has proved it by, in the time we've had him, requiring to have an eye removed, requiring to have a bladder operation because he would get too distracted and not go to the bathroom for long periods of time until he came oh up a bladder problem. And then escaping from the house three times and ending up in the crawl space. And if thing is, each time he does it, we're just like, oh fuck, we know exactly where he's gonna be. Because they're both indoor cats, so it's like, if a screen blows out of our window, or if, you know, they're sitting at the edge of the door when Kimiko's hanging out laundry and the wind blows the door shut, he's instantly gonna bolt for the gross crawl space under our house. Oh. And he's done it three times now to the point where we don't even get mad. It's just like, oh, fuck, he's under there again. <laughs> you dumbass. Our first cat we got, his name was Kazoo, and he got that name because my mom thought the great Guzoo from Flintstones was the great <laughs> Kazoo and refused to accept that she was wrong. <laughs> Until like months later that we like watched an episode and he showed up. She's like, oh no, I was wrong. We're like, we, we all told you. And now he's named for spite. Yeah. And stubbornness. <laughs> My friend Kiana like managed to sneak a geeky reference into one of her pet's names because her mom was always like, we're not naming our cats or dogs after one of the characters from your stupid books or your stupid movies. It's not going to happen. And they got a dog and she's like, what about Cinna? Mom, like cinnamon, because she's brown. And mom's like, cool. And in her head, Kiana has just read The Hunger Games and is like, yes! <laughs> nice. Her mom saw the movie and went, ah, oh, it!" <laughs> He's at least, it's Lenny Kravitz. Yeah, it's okay. I was gonna say, yeah, I listened to your I Will Fight You about Kingdom Hearts and I'm proud to say I know just as little coming out of it as I did going in. I was like, it may have been that I had tonsillitis that week, and so things were a little bit hazy, but I remember just like getting like halfway through and being like, I don't understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain in one sitting like that. It was yeah. one of those like halfway through recording, we're like, man, I'm glad we're doing things the way we're doing them on Kingdom Smarts because it's way easier. Yeah, I joked about Kit reusing the same what <laughs> response or okay. <laughs> Because she's like, no, every one of them was new. Everything was a clean reaction. How dare you? <laughs> I thought she would never talk to me again. <laughs> we ended the episode. I was like, I just lost two friends. No one's ever going to talk to me again. I think Kit has a great well of ability to be angry at her friends while still staying friends with them. <laughs> and usually it starts with, why would you do this to me? <laughs> We're pretty used to that when it comes to explaining Kingdom Hearts. Me and my husband had a Kingdom Hearts themed wedding, and like my, oh my side, God. like all the bridesmaids knew Kingdom Hearts, so they were cool with everything, but the groomsmen didn't. So like a lot of them, they're like, oh, well, just like explain enough Kingdom Hearts to us so like we know what's going on. Which to me and David, being longtime Kingdom Hearts fans, are just like, oh, so everything? Okay, here you go. <laughs> 
And then like an hour later, they're just like, stop, please stop, let us leave. There's a PowerPoint presentation and they're like, oh, I don't need to. And then the manacles come out of the chair and lock them down. You're like, oh no, it'll only be a moment. <laughs> and then like 30 minutes later, they're like, there's time travel? You lost me. I don't know what's going on anymore. Please let me leave. Can you get a new best man? I just wanted to know why Donald Duck was casting Fyraga. <laughs> We did the same thing to my dad, too, but my dad was a really good sport about it. Just, oh, like, good. nodding and smiling the whole time. This is the thing you're into, right, Pumpkin? Great. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> For a long time, my, like, top-tier wedding that I'd ever been to, until I got into my 30s and realized how awesome some weddings could be, was a wedding of my friends, Drew and Reba, who basically did a goth wedding that had a Doctor Who-themed karaoke reception. That's amazing. Yeah, and first off, like, the wedding was great because literally the entire groom's side rolled up, still smelling of booze from the night before. <laughs> but they had gotten everything done by Gallery Serpentine, which is like a goth shop here in, in Enmore. And so they were all in like, these amazing brocaded frock coats and everything. But it was also a hot Sydney day, so everyone was very, very warm. <laughs> and so they get there and it's they have the, the ceremony and they come out to Yoda's theme as the processional and they have the wedding and instead of a scripture reading they read of the owl and the pussycat during the now lovingly fixed bit in the old Australian marriage ceremony where you used to have to say marriages between a man and a woman boo hiss they had their celebrant take out a pride sash from the first pride parade for gay and lesbian Mardi Gras and put it on for that entire part of the ceremony Aww. and when they went out of course it was to the imperial march Nice. And so they get to the reception and it's all purple and black streamers and there's a karaoke stage set up and the cake topper is the doctor and sexy from the episode where the TARDIS becomes a woman. And I was just like, this is great. I love this. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly with the goth audience, the biggest karaoke kind of go off was Aqua's Barbie Girl where the entire dance floor filled up and everyone was screaming along. It was kind of great. <laughs> uh, I believe that because that song rules. Yes. I used to hate weddings when I was a kid, but like now that I've done a wedding, I respect them so much more. So now I'm just like super stoked to go to any wedding. And uh, my best friend, who was my maid of honor, and I got to be her maid of honor, she did a Star Wars themed wedding, and Aww. it was a ton of fun. And I got like a free lightsaber out of it. Excellent. And somewhere on the internet, there's a video of me giving my maid of honor speech, which I made up on the spot and cried the whole time because I'm very cool. <laughs> But yeah, like I just, I'm very bad at speeches, but they're just like, here's a microphone. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I just started crying and talking about her, but, <laughs> but it worked. Everyone, t everyone came up to me crying afterwards. They're like, it was so good. I was like, I blacked out. I don't know what happened. Where's my lightsaber? <laughs> it was like something out of a nature documentary. There was a blur and then there was a dead gazelle. <laughs>